You're now listening to Fintech Confidential, bringing you the people, tech, and companies that change how you pay and get paid. Be sure to subscribe to Fintech Confidential on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player by going to podcast.fintechconfidential.com and sign up for Fintech Confidential information at access.fintechconfidential.com. Welcome to this special episode of Fintech Confidential. On the episode of This Week in Fintech for February 25th, 2021, buy now, pay later became a big topic. And the one leading that was our special guest today, Chris Bixby, the VP of Growth for a company called Sezzle. Today's panel is full of experts around the buy now, pay later space, and this is just the first of many episodes to come that are focusing on BNPL. Let's get started with introductions from our panelists. Chris, why don't you welcome yourself onto the stage? Chris Bixby, I'm the VP of Growth at a company called Sezzle. We're a digital payments company that specializes in buy now, pay later. We are a publicly listed company, so I'll be careful about anything I share. Super excited to be kind of part of this. My background is actually in marketing, finance, private equity, and then just about two years ago, jumped into the world of fintech and have been excited to see how quickly it's evolved. And I, I think we're in phase two of at least three or four, and the evolution has been extremely rapid. Thanks, Ted, and looking forward to the discussion. Next up, we have Sarah Prom from Competiscan. Hi, thank you. My name is Sarah Prom. I work for a market research firm called Competiscan. I've been in the direct marketing and market research space since about 2004. We basically track and monitor the customer experience, and we have about 40,000 U.S. consumers. We essentially track all the marketing communications that they receive from all sorts of financial services. We track 10 different sectors. So what I have hope to add to today's discussion is the customer, what different buy now, pay later lenders are communicating to customers, how they're positioning their product in the marketplace, which is obviously very competitive and against credit cards and other means that these consumers have to manage their financial purchases. Awesome. Thanks, Sarah. Next up, we have Catherine McClure from PPRO, who has been on TED Talks Payments a number of times and is always giving great value around cross-border payments. Ted, as always, thanks for having me contribute. So hi and welcome, everyone. I am Catherine McClure. I've been in the payments industry for, gosh, 15-ish years, a lot of it on the merchant acquiring side, some of it on the card issuing side and several places in between, mostly in product and business development, as well as innovation. Currently, I am with PPRO, who is an infrastructure provider for cross-border e-commerce. So as you might imagine, we've had one heck of a year. I, I work in North American account management for them. Certainly, all opinions are my own and not of my employer, but we do work with some buy now, pay later providers. Thanks, Ted. Thank you, Catherine. Our next panelist is a managing director at Accenture. Please welcome Ann Bertelson. Nice to meet everyone tonight. It's interesting because several of us come from a marketing background. So Catherine, like you, I've been in the payments space. It's almost hard to believe that it's going on 24 years, I think, which um, I'm sure if you asked me as a kid, if this is what I'd grow up to do, I would never have said payments. 
I'm a managing director at Accenture. I specifically lead our global banking and payments practice within a, a part of our business called Interactive. So we really think about the front end experience across marketing, sales, and service. Everything I say tonight will really be my personal opinions and not those of my company. Like Catherine and some others, we work with a number of the buy now, pay later companies. Thanks for having me tonight. Thank you, Anne. And the last panelist for this episode, Atia Sabor from Moneris. Hi, Ted, and hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Um, Atia Sabor, I work as the senior sales effectiveness coach for the company Moneris. So we are the leader in payment processing in Canada. We're owned by the two biggest banks, RBC and BMO. So similar to everyone, I did not think I would be in the fintech world. That's not (laughs) what I expected growing up. But here I am almost half a decade into this and loving it. Everything that I have to share, ask, all my opinions are my own. They are to my employers. However, we are expected to launch our own buy now pay later solution later in this calendar year. So we are now exploring our options before going into market. So thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Now that you've met all the panelists, let's get started with the first question. Why is buy now pay later so big, not just in North America, but around the globe from your perspective? Thanks. Again, I follow it from a little bit different perspective. I would say in terms of what we've seen and the positioning and, and when it's come into the U.S. market, it's in terms of over time, since the time we started picking up buy now, pay later communications through today, I would say, especially in the past year, we're seeing it really, you saw with the pandemic, mail volume trends and marketing trends of traditional credit products go down and a ramp up of the buy now, pay later. I think recently the popularities come from some of the shifts in availability of credit from traditional means, and also a lot of pushes by these organizations for ease of use and flexibility, and also a a really strong appeal to the, some of the individuals with a thin file perhaps. So that, that's what I'm saying. I don't really have a global perspective. I'm sure others on the panel can speak more to that, but that's what we're seeing in terms of the positioning. This is Catherine. I can pick it up a little bit from an international perspective. Uh, It's really interesting that buy now, pay later has become such a huge thing, particularly in Western Europe and now especially in the United States uh, and North America. But it's really not something new. And this is something that I mentioned on the other call that we had where this was brought up. In Latin America, paying in installments is incredibly common. In Brazil, Mexico, Colombia, Argentina, especially, over half of e-commerce purchases are paid for using an installment plan, whether you're buying a washing machine or even something less expensive, something that might cost the equivalent of 25 to 50 US dollars. The majority of those transactions actually happen in installments. And there, there's some unique reasons in that region for that. One, it's not the same kind of trust related to government institutions, financial institutions, and certainly currency valuation can vary widely. And so it can be a matter to hedge your bets against utilizing the, these institutions too much. But it's also a great budgeting tool for a lot of users that you get paid every week and you can make these 
payments, whether it's weekly or fortnightly or whenever that is, you don't pay any interest on that. So it's a really good way to manage your money. And I'll just stop right there. Oh, and if I can just piggyback on Catherine's point about it's not new, both from an international flavor, but also here in the U.S. There's a company called Rent-A-Center, which was doing installment or installment plans for these appliances, furniture, et cetera, in the U.S. since the mid-80s. They're still going strong. They have a very large uh, customer base that continues to come back. Internationally, Klarna coming out of Sweden and other countries where the use of credit or is not as ingrained into the culture as it is here in the U.S. And so if you look at some of those countries where buy now, pay later has really sprung up, it's really in those countries where there hasn't been as deep of a penetration, at least in our experience, of the credit cards. I think that has a lot to do with the behaviors of those countries and then coinciding with some other comments about the pandemic and a younger generation with thin files, et cetera. I hope we get to talk about some of the credit scoring, credit building capabilities later. The only thing I would add is I think, by the way, Catherine nailed it last week when we were talking about this in terms of this has been a global solution for a long time. We've seen Klarna in Sweden make it very popular in Sweden and then Europe. And then Afterpay, about 10 or 15% of all e-commerce volume is going through buy now, pay later in Australia. And so I think a lot of these things that have been happening globally for years have then been reapplied to the U.S., whether it's the Rent-A-Center. QVC's always had this. Reverse layaway is another you know, term or thought. And I think outside of COVID, outside of this generational shift, there's big reasons that consumers are looking for short-term opportunities to get access to credit. And then I'll just call a spade a spade. There's also a lot of capital out there. Klarna's valued at you know, uh, $31 billion. A firm just went public and doubled day one. We went public, just closed the facility with Goldman Sachs. There's a lot of availability out now out there. And I think the conversations in terms of the retailer landscape have accelerated as fast as I think things that I've seen. And again, it's just been, I also think that the proof has been seen by these retailers. And so they talk, the next person sees it. And then there's a, a very competitive market looking at how to provide payment solutions for consumers. Thanks, Chris. The piece that I wanted to move on to next is we see a lot of this in the business to consumer type space. Why is it, has it not, or has it, and I just haven't seen it, why is it not jumped over to small business and being a form of lending in the small business space where invoices, especially in the small business area, hardly ever get paid on time? So I'd love to get a little bit of feedback and thoughts on that. So are you saying why buy now, pay later isn't used for B2B payments to small business? Sorry. I appreciate that. Buy now, pay later is getting the limelight in the business to consumer. And although that's a good way to, to be in the consumer environment, in the business to business environment where small businesses struggle to get invoices paid, I feel that that would be a good fit and probably a bigger revenue generator from my perspective. Why are we not hearing as much about that? Amazon thinks so too. Amazon has a similar kind of program for its merchants on its platform where they can buy their supplies and they try to keep everybody in their ecosystem. So they can buy their supplies and it's essentially a free loan. And then they take the 
I think like the first 30 days, I'm going to forget. Uh, but then they pay it back as a off of their sales. So it's a kind of interesting model because it is a buy now, pay later. And it allows them to buy the supplies that they need. So most of these smaller merchants are basically buying something in bulk and then reselling it. So think about in the pandemic when people were selling like bleach, as an example, they would borrow money. Amazon is fronting the money and then they take the payments from their sales. It's probably the better known one out there. Yeah, it is a huge opportunity. I think that's the case. And I think, Ted, this definitely comes up often. I think currently it's just the credit writing and underwriting model. It's just a little bit different where... Typically businesses, they're going to go, they're, they're going to be wanting more in terms of larger purchases, basically need more to be underwritten. And so there's a whole different type of application process, et cetera. And today, at least the buy now pay that we know aren't set up to do that. We do see B2B transactions if it's a sole proprietor or someone puts it on their personal credit card, but it's just a very different model. I think the other side of it is Factoring is an opportunity. There's other kind of merchant payday loans as an opportunity. And then if they get to the point of scale, to Anne's point, they have the ability to go on credit anyways, directly at the supplier level. I think you've totally hit on an area that's probably untapped. I'd say, again, the firms, Afterpays, Sezzles of the world, see a massive opportunity on the consumer side. So I haven't seen anyone moving into it yet. I think historically, when we look at transactions in the B2B space, there's always been that hesitation when it comes to fees that are involved. If you compare, for example, companies that are working on terms or working still through checks, even in, a, in the pandemic world that we live in right now, it's all a question of disintermediation because of the fees that could be involved or to your point, Chris, regulations that are put in place, how are they actually assessing whether or not they qualify for these you know, lump sums because we are talking B2B space versus B2C. So the ticket sizes, the transaction amounts vary significantly depending on the industry type. I definitely agree that it's something that we haven't tapped into quite yet, whether or not the opportunity is going to be there just as much as it is with the B2B, B2C space. I think time will tell. I think, Anne, you brought this up but I'm wondering, is it because it has been traditionally harder to get business credit for those solopreneurs or those sole proprietors leveraging their consumer accounts? Or is it just that it's easier? In order to activate a buy now, pay later? or So leveraging their consumer buy now, pay later facilities in their business instead of using a traditional or going the route of getting a business loan of some sort. The thing about small businesses, they, they sort of run the gamut. So I think Chris may have mentioned. So when you get those solo proprietors, solo proprietors who may not have enough business credit or access to cash or capital, some of the underserved communities that have typically haven't had challenges getting access to capital, they might want to use a, a kind of program like this and to the extent that it's available. But if you have access to other funding mechanisms, then there are plenty of options. So one of the options I was thinking about was that as an example, Square has its own sort of financing capabilities for small businesses. And one of the things that Square, I think was one of the first to do is something like same day settlement. So if you're a small merchant and you're taking transactions on their platform, they know what your sales were. 
and they're taking a little bit of a risk, but you can ask to be paid now. It's not a pay now by by later, but they're having their access to cash. But this product ultimately gives people access to their goods now and allows them to either budget their payments or to give them credit if they don't have access to credit. This is a product, and particularly when I think about the historically where it came from, it's a product that was meeting a niche, meeting a need for people who had no access to capital or to cash. And if you ever looked at the profile of who was using a rent-a-center, it typically they typically were people historically who couldn't get credit in the way that most people did. They might have had a credit card. They typically had a credit card, but their line of credit was say $1,000, which if you're trying to buy a, you know, a couch and a TV or furnish an apartment or whatever, quickly choose into that. I think when you think about that and having that access to capital, it sets this model of behavior. What's interesting about what Klarna and Affirm have done has moved that sort of installment plan to different category, to things that are quite frankly, smaller ticket, right? So the fact that you can go on Sephora or any other retailer and see Klarna and Affirm for fairly small ticket items and to break it over for, period, for installments. Whereas I think, and Catherine, love your perspective on this, where I think some of the earlier installment programs were really meant for bigger ticket items. I think there's a bit of a difference here. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, Ted, but I think net-net small businesses come in lots of different flavors. And if, if you don't have access to cash and you're smaller, you, you might want to do this and use your consumer card as the way in. And that was perfect. I appreciate that perspective. It actually flips me over to thinking about something. Sarah, what are you seeing in the customer behaviors where are they taking these buy now, pay later funds to? What kind of businesses and what kind of products and services are they buying? Because Ann just mentioned it, it's showing up in low dollar amount items. Thanks. That's a great question. And I was glad that Ann mentioned that. I think that's an interesting point. We're seeing the actual communications coming from these buy now, pay later to consumers. A firm recently launched the debit card, but it, over the course of the last month or so, they've had a, this steady kind of awareness campaign. And initially, a lot of these buy now, pay laters did not do a lot of customer communications. Our panelists, there weren't that many panelists actually using it, so we didn't see a lot. And the panelists essentially submit to us everything that they receive, whether it's direct mail or email marketing communications, and we weren't seeing much post-sale. We'd see the invoice and that was about it. Now, over the course of the last year, I would say especially, you see a lot of traditional communications like you'd see from a typical bank or a credit card issuer. You see welcome emails, congratulations on your first purchase and paying it off. Life's point in time, like marketing communications, some are putting forth refer a friend campaigns, things like that. But what brings me to the topic of the size of the purchases or what was interesting to me when she mentioned that is that I think there is, of course, as if you look across all the different providers of these types of financing, you see the full spectrum of the types of merchants that they work with and the size of purchases that they can use it for. But a firm over the past month was really, you saw a lot of marketing communication that looked a lot like some of the unsecured installment loans, which obviously are for they go up to 35000 from the likes of Marcus and, and organizations like that. But some of the marketing communications using it, suggesting it for use on exercise bike, a home makeover, whenever, wherever adventure calls, a laptop, potentially huge. A lot of these work with different furniture companies up to the point of fi- for furnishing your home and things like that. But a lot of that un- 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 
installment lending, um, unsecured installment lending that we saw so much of over the past, especially three, three to five years, was positioning for whatever you need, think of us. So when it came to the unsecured lending, it was always like a consumer has many options of financing a purchase. Are they going to pull out their credit card? Or are they going to use their co-brand card? Are they going to use a private label retail card with that particular merchant? Another push, another theme I saw in the communications from a firm recently is bringing forth the reminding people of their virtual uh, cards. I know Cezla has one of those as well. Perhaps some of the other ones do. I may not be aware of it, but you know that you can use it anywhere. And I listened to some of the communication around the, the debit card. And obviously, you can already use some of these financing options anywhere, but the debit card was meant to take it to the offline as well as the online. Whereas this, these other, if you go to a store that's not an online community, you have to carry your phone still with you. So and then the card is more of a, of a plastic. But so I, I think it's expanding. And there certainly are buy now, pay laters that work in the travel space. So it is not only small purchases. We're seeing it really across the board. I appreciate that perspective, Sarah. One of the things that has been going through is we we talked about Rent-A-Center, we've talked about small purchases, we've talked about big purchases, but one of the themes that keeps coming up is underserved. The thing that comes to mind is like, how do we shift the perspective of how to underwrite the credit and differently look at the consumer or at the person who is doing this so that we can understand credit worthiness, not just exposure. And Chris, I don't know if that's something that it says you guys are looking at or how you're approaching that. Yeah. And, and I'm going to speak as, as much as possible as an industry, but I know Cezzle, so I'll probably have to share a little bit of how we do things without going too proprietary. Essentially, buy now, pay later, which I look at as the short-term installments, uh, four payments, six weeks, zero interest, they're good up to about $600. So actually when PayPal launched their pay and for product, they were very explicit to the market. That was good for under 600. And in that category, when that's a buy now, pay later, then you get into installments with you know, firm and, and some other options, so catapult and progressive leasing. But on the short-term element, it's really leaning into the trust of the consumer. So anywhere between a third and two thirds don't have a credit card. Many in the younger generation saw their parents, cousins, brothers go through really bad times in the Great Recession. Actually, it got to this point where people were looking for alternative forms of payment and, and, and they moved over to buy now, pay later. And then what we look at, though, is essentially leaning into trust. And us, as long as others, will lend essentially anyone. And actually, we lend about 20% to consumers that don't even have a FICO or credit profile. So whether that's an 18-year-old that's never found a way to build it, or whether someone that's new to the country, and you give them essentially enough money that you think they can afford to pay back. And then assuming good repayment behavior, you continue to increase their credit limits over time as they continue to shop more frequently. So there's definitely underwriting, but it's not typical kind of Experian, TransUnion scores. There's alternative data that's out there that you can pull into the credit model. But a lot of it's frankly just the fraud model, ensuring it's a real customer, and then building a credit profile around them. So Chris, does that mean that you're looking at their behavior across multiple folks, multiple merchants or businesses? on your platform to identify credit worthiness? And is that part of the, the plan? And I, in general, I shouldn't even say sizzle, but 
that sounds like it, it seems to be a, a good way to manage the risk. Yeah. And that's, I think at the end of the day, like there's again, alternative sources of data that aren't, and, and this is a little beyond my core expertise here, but there's alternative sources of data that you can pull in that are not, again, the traditional credit bureaus. And you create a profile around the consumer, but then it's really about repayment behavior. Do they pay on time? What's the size of the purchase and how they look at their limit? And then you're essentially building a relationship. And as you look at this growth in this category, that's why, honestly, having the consumer is so important because repeat purchase rates, you really understand them. And so we see our 2018 cohort purchasing with us about 15 times per year. And, and at that point, we know the customer probably as well as anyone in terms of their profile, where they shop, how they shop, and, and then what their profile looks like. Thanks, Chris. I, oh, go ahead, Sarah. Oh, I was just going to say, Chris, I had seen something that we picked up from a consumer. It was a, it must be a, one of your customers, but I thought it was interesting. This says a lot program. I don't know if you have anything to do with that. It was one that I, I wasn't really aware of, but until I had seen that, I thought that was very interesting just in terms of if you look at other fintechs, Vero recently launched the Vero Believe program with some Tacom credit building. It's a debit card now down the road, some credit building things. So I think it's interesting to see the way that you mentioned like the age and I have a 20 year old and thinking about the way that she's built credit either through her cell phone and getting a cell phone and her first discover card or whatever. But they do have limited knowledge and limited interest in certain types of credit. But I thought that program was interesting. I don't know if that's something yeah. that you... Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I didn't jump into it. But most pay laters or buy now pay laters are not building credit because we're not doing formal credit checks. So if we did a full underwriting process and did a hard credit check, by default, that would potentially increase your credit credit and there'd be reporting around it. Because most of us do not, the consumer is actually not building. So for the two-thirds or at least a third of the young generation that's not using credit cards, they're actually just not building credit. And so what we did is we launched a product called Sezzle Up, which allows our consumer to opt in. And then at that point, we'll start reporting for them. So we did find that some consumers said, you know what, I don't quite feel good enough. I don't feel safe about it. And I don't want to do this. This is part of the reason why I, I use Buy Now, Pay Later. You know, there's no risk of collections in most cases. But if they do opt in, they, they have that ability to start building their credit, which we actually think is, we think of this as a prime to be category. Most are subprime today, but at some point, ideally, and hopefully they will be prime and whether it's the economy, life stage, or whatever, consumers want to find a way to get to home ownership and have a credit card. So that's where Settle Up comes in. I, I think that's hey, really can cool. I... I saw that. I thought that was awesome. I just wanted to give you a thumbs up yeah. on that. <laughs> thanks. And I was a little bit involved in that one, so thanks. <laughs> yeah, and I, I would concur. I think that's the really interesting piece about buy now, pay later, right? Because we... There are so many, there's large swaths of the population across the globe that are being what, what we like to call neglected. Because sometimes when you use the word underserved, particularly with financial institutions, that immediately, and bankers, and, and forgive me if any clients are on the phone, I'm, again, I'm, I'm speaking from my own personal perspective. Sometimes that sends off alarms like, oh, underserved, not going to be profitable. It's going to create undue risk for me. Or if I do need to serve them, that's part of a CSR program. And what I really love about and the potential, I think, in the buy now, pay later space is if you can start to offer up programs where you can start to report this information. I think having any products that are out there that help people learn about credit, build credit, 
use different sources of data will help open up and democratize cash or, or capital. And we don't do that well enough across the board. I'll just and these are all just fantastic points and certainly absolutely want to do everything that we can to help consumers all throughout the spectrum and bring up great points about the underserved because I've certainly worked with lots of banks where, you know, in that space. And a lot of times they're seen as a demographic that either you serve because you have to, massive risk, or alternatively, way almost too much of a profit pool. But the other thing to think about is not necessarily the quote unquote underserved, but a lot of merchants are turning to this to increase their basket sizes because there certainly is a psychology. And Sarah, from a marketing perspective, would love to see what you might have to say about that to say, you know what, I might want to buy one, a $400 item, but that $600 item from another merchant, I could do that in four installments. And maybe my partner won't think too badly about the credit card bill or lots of other psychological reasons that merchants can use besides budgeting and besides trying to get consumers that they wouldn't get before, but to get increased basket sizes. Yeah, I think the marketing communications are very interesting. And to your point, and not every single one of the um, buy now, pay laters uses the same type of marketing. A firm in particular, I felt like recently has been pretty, pretty has been the, around Valentine's Day. Deciding is hard. Paying should be easy. Blingy or bold, rosé or roses. And really encouraging people to like go for the better one. Upgrade your sneakers or save for a treadmill. That's another interesting topic that I, I hadn't realized that a firm has a savings account. So yeah, I definitely think I've seen, I saw something, I think it was quad pay and it was like split your payment in four at the grocery store and splurge on the good stuff. Yes, I think that we see that encouragement to their, once once somebody becomes a customer, the way that they talk to those customers, the way that they encourage them to use that, I, I definitely see that kind of communication or that that messaging. It's an interesting, I, I think that has been, and I'd be curious from those that are in that space, my sense is that it has actually been driving some of that increased basket size. And it's that whole psychology of paying for making purchases. But I do wonder, and I don't know if this is the right time and this conversation, but what are those implications when sometimes people do too many of them, right? And that, this is where the regulators are starting to weigh in and take a scrutiny. Because when you when it becomes so easy, and we haven't even talked about the experience part of it, the checkout experience for a Klarna and a firm when you go to any of these, it's super easy. It was built for the digital age, and it becomes almost too easy. And then all of a sudden, you've got multiple installment plans. And has the consumer thought about how many times they have done that in the past week, in the past month? And can they truly afford all these various installments happening at the same time? How are they keeping track of it? And that kind of jumps into the psychology around what does fraud look like in buy now, pay later? And then on top of that, the psychology around the idea, and Chris even hit on it just a moment ago, is the likelihood of this going to collections is relatively low. And what does that mean when there's a change in the economic environment? So psychology-wise, do I realize I'm doing all this? 
how is that impacting the way that I'm looking at paying it back with the lowered potential collections and just seeing how that comes into play. And I'd love us to to answer this. I guess I'll add to that question uh, that Anne asked. And I think, Chris, you're probably going to be able to answer this. But for a company like us, where we're getting all these concerns from merchants as well, they obviously want to increase their revenue as well, knowing that merchants, knowing that they have that option of paying later, but buying it now, especially with these fashion trends that are building these habits with the consumers. That's where the hesitation comes into play. Yes, you're collecting this data from an AI aspect and figuring out whether or not this is prone to a fraudulent transaction, but how are you really assessing their paying habits and whether or not that mitigation of the risk of them not being able to pay that off, is that going to, in the end, hurt the business more than it it was to benefit them? Because a company like Klarna, yes, they are very valuable, but at the end of the day, a bunch of a big portion of that value is the data that they have on all of these merchants and all these consumers. But what about the the other aspect of it? So I'd love to hear how Sezzle or any company out there that's working with it is dealing with that. And, and I'll flip it back and, and hear how like Moneris is thinking about it too. But I'll, I'll actually give the non-Sezzle answer and just what I've seen based on kind of the different markets in terms of regulation, we've seen the UK in particular has really been a challenging place in terms of regulators now jumping into the conversation. And a lot of it was because of basically consumers who are getting hit with fees that they weren't aware of. And to the point earlier, ability to pay is really hard to figure out. You can look at credit profiles, you can look at whatever alternative data, but the true ability to pay is a, is a tough thing. What they had over there in terms of a product was this pay later product, which is pay later in 30 days. And it was just on a call earlier with several retailers actually talking about something very similar. They felt there's actually the product itself of a pay later product 30 days later in and of itself creates negative habits in terms of the consumer behavior. And that was actually the product that was getting uh, nailed by consumers, regulators, and then actually, I guess, media between that. I think in terms of the shorter term piece, it goes back to basically trying to provide enough credit that the consumer will pay back on time. And so most of us make money on the actual processing fee itself. And so in an ideal world, we actually wouldn't make any money on consumer late fees or anything else like that. Because essentially the propensity for the consumer to continue to buy is a better situation for all of us versus a credit card or high interest leasing program or something like that, where basically the money's being made more on interest than it is on interchange and and processing fees. And so I think it's actually like a little bit of just the way the models is built up. Now, I, I will say the big question that we all have is, Is there additional forms of debt that the consumer has that we're not aware of? So they continue to pay us back, but are there other forms of debt? Typically, our consumers don't have credit cards. And if they do, they probably wouldn't be able to use us in different ways. And so I think the way the model is structured, it is better overall for the consumer. But ability to pay is definitely a consideration. Actually, one of the news points that came up today was Afterpay and Zip and even Klarna in Australia are looking to how to self-police the buy now, pay later industry a bit more because just pushing for shopping is always a thing that, you know, we want to make sure we're doing well as a a financial empowerment company. 
Chris, thank you so much. That answered my question as as well. And one of the things that was brought up, and Anne, I think you brought it up, is just talking about the overall experience. And we are not going to have enough time to dive into that. So I will be scheduling another event within the next week or so for us to dive into that. We have 15 minutes left today, and I wanted to go ahead and start getting some questions answered. And we have people that have been extremely patient with this. Hi, my name's Kai. Part of my questions was just, answered but i'm just curious about specifically the business model and the risk model of buy now pay later because customers are not paying interest where do those credit facilities come from and how do both the merchants and the buy now pay later companies are making money and if the customer do default who will assume the risk of of the default let me try and slim that up to one question instead of four where's the money made and who holds the bag when someone defaults? I can jump in. We make money through our processing fee, and that's pretty typical, whether it's a firm, afterpay, et cetera. There's a processing fee. It's typically a little bit more than typical interchange for debit or credit cards. And that's to go back to Catherine's point around increased AOVs, additional consumers, better conversion rates, et cetera. And then the risk is all taken on by the fintechs. So Most are paid out within a few days, uh, just like a credit card. And then if there are any defaults or issues from repayment, that's handled by the fintechs. Thanks, Chris. The next person that has participated in many of the TED Talk sessions, and I'm excited to hear his perspective from a Lindit fintech perspective. Ted, thanks so much for the for the intro. Boo Bruskern from Lindit Fintech, the media company. I'd like to just get uh, throw a hypothesis out there and see what the panel thinks. I think there's a good argument that this could be really good for consumer health. And the reason I say that is if there's a matching between the length of the payments, let's say it's a pay in for product, and the object or the service that is purchased is last longer than those payments are scheduled. Then what you have is a very fast amortizing, very low interest or embedded interest loan. And and that can, I don't think it's a panacea, but I think it can lead to somewhat better financial decisions uh, that are made and possibly less of a credit spiral that a lot of Americans find themselves in. Bo, what was the specific question? I got lost in, in the discussion. Nope, it wasn't a question. It was seeking comment. Does it agree or disagree is the question. Is this good for financial health or is this super dangerous? I can chime in. I think anything that allows for better, I don't know if the, it's probably the wrong phrase, but like financial hygiene is a good thing for consumers. And I think we had already spoken a little bit earlier in the discussion about how that relates to groups of people who don't have uh, the same kind of access to credit cards as some others. Yeah, definitely. I think that it's a great tool, just like any tool used wisely can absolutely bolster financial health. Yeah, I would say it's a good idea, but it, there's some. it's not in its current state. So I think there needs to be some additional capabilities. So the, the ability to keep track of all these various installment purchases that you've made or your buy now, pay later purchases your ability to start to contribute to build your credit. I, I do think there's great potential, but but I think it needs some improvements and some of them will come and clearly Sizzle's starting to, Sizzle's trying to do that. And I'll just hit on one real quick thing. So 80% of the US lives paycheck to paycheck, that's pre-COVID data. 
and it's about 60% can't afford a $500 unexpected expense. And so I actually started at Sezzle running the marketing team and we did a whole bunch of user surveys. And this is, again, this is not a Sezzle specific, but we did a lot of user surveys going into COVID, especially as people were concerned about their jobs, they're being laid off, they're having issues. And pay later for that consumer population, even when things like stimulus checks weren't coming out, it was a massive help. And from a consumer psyche standpoint and benefit, I think we do forget sometimes about the large swath of the population that is struggling. And so with the right things and right access to purchase, I think it makes a lot of sense. Now, there's always uh, the flip side of consumers that are probably spending too much and probably buying too many things. And we're always trying to be careful about that. But I think the consumer sentiment side, when you look at it, is, is pretty pretty significant. Chris, you just hit on one, one thing that I will have to follow up um, with the team on is the big piece is like, what about like the large purchases that are future facing, like travel and things like that. I know that, and Catherine, I know that Pipro and, and Klarna did a study around that, but I'm curious to like, how is that going to impact a bunch of other things? So we'll take that up as a separate item and we'll re- revisit that piece of it as well. There's so many things we can unpack with buy now, pay later, and it definitely won't fit in a one hour segment. So I'm going to move on to the next question from Aviv. Aviv, what do you have for us, sir? Hey guys. Um, Great, great content. Great, a great conversation you guys have had here today. My question is for these providers of the buy now, pay later services, how does the relationship work between them and their their payment processors or the, the banks that handle their payments? And I asked this from background in payments and we ever have a merchant with too many chargebacks, right? That's unhealthy for their merchant account on a small scale. How do you know you're representing hundreds of these merchants and taking exposure to their refunds or their chargebacks? Who's responsible for those chargebacks? And how does that work with your relationship with the payment providers? Thank you. Chris, I have a feeling that that one was targeted to you, my friend. Yeah. I I can jump in, I think, and I'll try to cover it. And and I would love to get Atia's perspective as well. Totally. I think she will have one. So real quick, in terms of typical, and and I think this is a question, but processors, most of the fintechs either directly integrate or integrate with payment processors. So like the Adians, Arises, cyber sources of the world, that's one step. The other step is in terms of the fraud model and chargebacks, more and more of the merchants that we're working with are running fraud models through something like a forder. And so we ask them if they can to run it through. But in terms of the chargeback, most from what I can glean, or at least the way we do it, is we look at the chargeback just as we look at fraud or repayment where we take it on. So it's actually something that when we talk about interchange and our gap to interchange, we typically try to get retailers chargebacks because they are having to eat that themselves. And in the case of pay later, we encourage it to go through a fraud model, but if something doesn't get caught, ultimately you know, we hold the risk. Yeah, I totally agree with uh, what Chris said. At the end of the day, as long as we're talking cardinal present transactions, which is pretty much the reality of today, the risk is taken by the payment processor. And whether they're owned by financial institutions like we are or not, it's impossible to guarantee that a transaction is going to be 100% protected against fraud, regardless of the layering of fraud tools that you put on there. So 
yes, from adding multiple fraud tools to your system and your solution and your merchants that you're boarding with these buy now pay later solutions, it can mitigate it slightly, but it is not going to protect you entirely, which is the reason why companies that are partnering up with the buy now pay later companies from a perspective of the payment processing, they're really doing their due diligence because there is a risk involved unless the regulations are changed. Awesome. Thank you. That was a wonderful answers to all the fantastic questions that we had. I want to offer up the panel to give some parting words as we close up shop. Sarah, what are your parting words for the listeners? Thanks. I really enjoyed this conversation. I would just say it's, it's such an exciting space to watch. I'm really interested watching it to see how the buy now, pay later is intersecting with traditional banking products. And I'm excited to see where that goes. So I would say, yeah, that's really where my focus is. And I look forward to future conversations because as you said, there's a million directions to delve in this space. Anne, do you have any parting words? Yeah, again, thank you for hosting and uh, having me on the panel. It's similar to Sarah, which is, you know, what I've been so curious about is where the banks are in in this space. There's a huge opportunity that I think they could take, and it would certainly change the dynamics of who's operating in the customer base. I would agree with that. I'm actually quite surprised that the banks haven't jumped in, but that, that may be coming here shortly. Chris, any final words? I'm just going to say on the B2B side, I know I already sent you the message, but we did find one doing it. And so I think we got to give credit to Ted for for finding the next big thing, B2B payments and and how this is all going to work. But no, this has just been fun. I think there's going to be a lot of collaboration. I agree on the banks. I agree on processors. We're just excited to see how this all plays out. Awesome. Thanks, Chris, for for triggering this discussion last week. So thank you so much. Catherine, any parting words? Oh, I echo so much as what's been said. This has been a fantastic conversation. I think from my perspective, I think that for just a lot of things in payments, we do need to look around the world. So I'm going to do my global shout out again to countries like Germany that's had invoice payments forever and pioneers like Klarna in Europe, as well as what we've seen in Latin America. There's so much opportunity in this space for the North Americans, this is a very North American focused panel, to take what we've seen happen in other parts of the world and build upon it and make it uniquely North American like we like to do. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah. And I, I look forward to having more discussions around the work that that Pro and Klarna did around the travel. I think that is that will be a great session all by itself. Buy now, pay later, travel. What does that mean? I look forward to having that discussion with you and, and others as well. And last but definitely not least, what, what parting words do you have for us? Yeah, I, I agree. I think this was a wonderful discussion. It's a definitely an exciting space that we are all keeping a close eye on. It's had remarkable growth, and I think it's only going to grow exponentially from here, especially with the pandemic. And I agree with your your comment, Bo. I think that this is a space that is going to benefit the consumers if educated in the way they're going to actually use this to their advantage. It will instill some really good habits and help a lot of the people that 
don't have access to that kind of credit otherwise. So thank you for this discussion. Thank you to everyone on the panel. And that's it for this special episode of Do You Buy Now, Pay Later? Be sure to subscribe to Fintech Confidential on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player by going to podcast.fintechconfidential.com. Fintech Confidential hosts This Week in Fintech every Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time. We encourage you to share your news with us by sending an email club at fintechconfidential.com or send us a text at 919-789-1749. You can participate in the conversation by joining us on the Clubhouse app where we broadcast each episode live by following Fintech Confidential Club. Our show notes in each episode are available at www.fintechconfidential.com and you can get Fintech Confidential information by signing up at access.fintechconfidential.com. If you want to be a guest on Fintech Confidential, submit your application at guest.fintechconfidential.com. Fintech Confidential, bringing you the people, tech, and companies that change how you pay and get paid.